It is late October, 1546, the Renaissance. In Rome, Michelangelo, at the height of his career, has just received the commission as the architect of St. Peter's Basilica. Copernicus's recently published book placing the sun at the center of the solar system has created waves in the scientific community and in the church. Elsewhere in Europe, the church is facing another challenge in the form of the Protestant Revolution, which is splitting Christianity in half. Ideas. Ideas are more potent than ever due to the rise of mass communication and increasing literacy made possible by the printing press and the flourishing new publishing industry. In Florence, the courtesan, Tullia di Aragona, is summoned before the court for refusing to comply with an order that women engaged in the sex trade wear a yellow veil when in public. She enters the courthouse without her veil, passerbys on the street whispering about her indecency, or perhaps in support of her audacity. She presents the court with a petition, drafted by her lawyer, Benedetto Varchi, requesting an exemption from the law based on her being a poet. You are listening to She Speaks Volumes, the primer for 500 years of feminist history, philosophy, and writing. In this episode, we are listening to excerpts from Dialogue on the Infinity of Love by Tullia de Aragona, the 16th century poet, philosopher, and courtesan. Tullia de Aragona is being read by Vita Wolf, and Benedetto Varchi is being read by Tommaso Thalang. If you enjoy this episode, please consider donating using the Buy Me a Coffee link. All donations support the production of the podcast and help me hire voice actors. A link is in the show notes and on the website, feralculturelab.com. I don't think one can compare a courtesan in the Renaissance to a call girl today. The Cortigiani Anesta or the honest courtesans, were perhaps closer to a Hollywood starlet. The honest courtesans had some degree of respect, and certainly social power. Outside of the convent, it was the only career option for women. If you were charming, intelligent or talented, and of course beautiful, a courtesan could do very well financially. They could own property and have control of their own money. Indeed, they had far greater rights and independence than a decent married woman. Though they were companions, the honest courtesan relied on skills and talent, such as singing, playing music, poetry, and prose writing. They were trendsetters, had social influence, and would be well known, at least by reputation. Tullia de Aragona's reputation was based as much on her poetry and philosophical writings as it was on her beauty. But let's not romanticize it. A career as a courtesan was the only option for a woman to earn an independent living. It must have been fiercely competitive. There is no doubt in my mind that it wasn't all jewelry, adoration, and roses. A paid companion, no doubt, meant you were subject to the whims of whichever man was paying you to sing, dance, seduce, and entertain at his call. And, of course, this career had a shelf life. As soon as someone more pliable, more youthful, newer, more beautiful, came around, you were history. And unless you were savvy with the money you had made, your future was probably very bleak. Published in 1547, at the end of Tullia's career as a courtesan, 
The dialogue on the infinity of love is a philosophical dialogue on the nature of romantic love. The philosophical dialogue as a literary form has its roots in classical Greece, about 4th century BCE. Dialogues experienced a resurgence in the Renaissance as it allowed writers to explore topics through dialectical or opposing ideas. Sometimes this might be a teacher to student, or it might be closer to what we would call a debate. Though there were numerous dialogues on love written, tracing the lineage back to Plato's Symposium, the infinity of love was the only one written by a woman. In D'Aragona's dialogue, the speakers are Tullia D'Aragona herself and her friend Benedetto Varchi, humanist, historian, poet, and her lawyer. They speak as equals, though Varchi clearly expresses feelings that women are inferior. As Tullia wrote the dialogue, one must imagine this is intentional. The dialogue on the infinity of love explores the question, is love eternal? The question proposed for discussion is as follows. Is it possible to love within limits? Can't you give an answer to this? I don't understand the terms of the proposition. So how can I possibly solve the question? I know the tricks you are up to. Please do me a favor. If you have the slightest affection for me and leave your excuses and witticisms to one side, if I can scarcely see the light, there's no reason to bandage my eyes completely. What a splendid way women have. They reinterpret everything after their own fashion, whoever they deal with, at whatever place or time. The utmost things in their minds is to come out the victors. But now, tell me, are love and to love not one and the same thing? Do you really mean what you have just said? I most certainly do. Come on, stop talking nonsense. There am I, asking you to speak more plainly, and you start going in for riddles and try to raise a laugh from us. Honestly, I never realized you were such a prankster. It is you who makes me laugh. Do drop the prattle and try to answer the question I am putting to you. And what exactly is that? Whether love and to love are the same thing. In faith, sir, no, they are not. There you did want me to give clear questions, a clear answer. If love and to love are not the same things, then they must obviously be different from each other. Yes, sir. This is a brand of logic that I too can understand. And if all logical deductions were formed like your last proposition, I could answer them all in an instant. It is not enough to say yes, sir, like that. What well, then I must prove it to you? Certainly. I want you to prove it to me. Even if I were unable or unfit to prove it, I still would not accept that love and to love are identical. Because I have heard and been convinced countless times that it is impossible to prove things that are clear and obvious in themselves. That is very true. You have heard and been convinced of the right thing. However, ours is not one of those cases. 
Then why don't you prove the opposite of my assertion? You'd be in trouble if this were a judicial hearing, because our esteemed jurist would not allow it. So, you are sure you don't want to come up with a couple of differences between them? I could find a thousand. Name one. What shall I say? Love is a noun. To love is a verb. In the 16th century, women were almost completely controlled by men. They were limited to the home, except for specific purposes, and then they were chaperoned. They had no direct involvement in trade, politics, or in education. The influence they might have over their husbands, fathers, or sons was their only opportunity to participate in the public sphere. Women were seen as weak, fickle, and stupid, a view encouraged by the church, still intent on punishing women for the sins of Eve. Almost everything we know about women in history was written by men. Any writing we have that is written by a woman provides us with a more complete understanding of how women really were and are. As a courtesan, the Aragona would have freedom of movement, exposure to culture, politics, and a wide society of primarily influential and wealthy men. One would imagine she would also have some influence socially and politically. She would have been envied, certainly by other women. She might have been rejected or ostracized based on her boldness, the breaking of social conventions, her audacity. But her influence and power was only because she was a companion for men. It isn't a status she could have achieved independently. D'Aragona would have interests and the education and exposure to contemporary culture that allowed her to participate in conversations about politics, society, and philosophy, unlike the wives, sisters, and mothers of her clients. The Renaissance fostered a renewed interest in philosophy and the works of Seneca, Plato, Aristotle, and Epicurus. New works based on these ideas were common by Italian writers, including Varchi. But that a woman might have a perspective might be able to read, understand, disagree, even form her own opinion was novel. I suspect that this was mistakenly seen as D'Aragona being uniquely gifted, but really we might have dozens of works by women philosophers had they not been forced to stay at home without education or society. Is it not the case that God loves himself? Yes, that is so. Therefore, he is both the lover and the beloved. He is. And which of the two do you consider the most noble? The lover or the beloved? Without a doubt, it is the one who is loved. Why? Because the loved one constitutes not just the efficient and normal cause of an act, but also the final one. And the final cause is the most noble of all causes. It leaves the role of material cause to the lover. And this is the least worthy form of causation. An excellent and erudite response. Hence, it follows that God, if considered as the recipient of love, is more noble than himself when considered as the agent of love. Yes, but what is that supposed to prove? When one is speaking of our mortal world, it's really not acceptable to introduce elements of the divine, because the latter is so perfect that we shall never comprehend it and each individual is entitled to pronounce his own opinion about it. We shall never be capable of comprehending more about God that his perfection puts him beyond comprehension. Perhaps the real point is that 
In discussing love, we are already touching on matters of the divine, despite what you seem to believe. Please, tell me, which do you hold to be more the most perfect? Form alone without matter or form united to matter? I can't quite understand that. Which one do you judge to be most worthy? The soul taken by itself without the body or the soul and body together? No, I can understand. But it seems to me one of those problems that is unproblematic. Is anyone ignorant of the fact that the whole body and soul taken together is more noble and more perfect than the soul by itself? Well, you, for one, seem to be in the dark about that. Why? Because the soul by itself is more noble and perfect. You yourself would have to admit that at least the two are on par, because the soul will exert the same power united with the body as it does by itself, being the same identical soul. Even if the body adds nothing to the soul, it still doesn't have to reduce it to any degree. Even if the soul remain identical, it is still more worthy in itself and more noble without the corporeal element than if it were united with the body. In just the same way as a lump of gold has greater purity taken by itself than if it is soiled by mud or mixed in an alloy of lead. Benedetto Varchi had written and lectured on the rational soul before, and though his work is based on his study of Aristotle's philosophy, there is something distinctly Christian in this mind-body split. The idea that the body is dirty, the body is bad, and the spirit is good. Women are intrinsically linked with the corporeal, the earthly plane. In the dialogue, Tulia has assigned herself as defending body and soul as one, and Varchi seeing the spirit as being superior. Tulia's view, I think, is closer to how we experience love today, less encumbered by the views of religion, but not entirely devoid of the polarity of romantic versus erotic love. She would be highly experienced in the art of conjuring love keeping in mind that love was not seen as it is today. People did not expect to meet one true love. They did not marry for love or even for romance. They married for economic and political reasons and to have children. There was, of course, courtly love, an ideal of romantic and erotic love, but this was not based on the consummation of sexual desire, but on the desire itself. For additional details on the names, terms, and events referenced in this episode, check out the show notes. They are a glossary of sorts and are a valuable guide if the writer or history is new for you. If you want to learn more about the writers covered in She Speaks volumes, sign up for the Feral Culture Lab's monthly newsletter. Each issue has an article about the featured writer for that episode, upcoming episodes, feminist facts and news, and updates on my other projects. The link to subscribe is in the show notes and at feralculturelab.com. So now, pray, what do you think love is? Do you think you can just fire off a question like that? And so suddenly, to a woman, especially to a woman such as myself? You are trying to get me to say that women are of greater worth than a host of men. Perhaps you want me to touch on your own great merits. 
for you have always put more emphasis on decking out the soul with exceptional virtues than on embellishing the body with pretty or majestic ornaments. Actually, I didn't ask you what love was, but what you thought love was, for I am well aware that normally women's aptitude for love is feeble. You're wrong there. Perhaps you were judging women's love from your own. Imagine what you would have said if I had added, as I was on the point of doing, and had quoted some lines of Petrarch. Whence I know full well that the state of love lasts, but a short time in woman's heart. What a trickster you are. Thing would have happened if Madonna Laura had gotten around to writing as much about Petrarch as he wrote about her. Anyway, why aren't you keeping your promise to me? You haven't yet told me what you think love is. Love, according to what I have frequently heard from other authorities, as well as by my own understanding of it, is nothing other than a desire to enjoy with union what is truly beautiful or seems beautiful to the lover. What would have happened if Laura had written as much about Petrarch as he wrote about her? Jane Austen raises this question almost 300 years later in Persuasion, and a century after that, Virginia Woolf asks it again in A Room of One's Own. We can only imagine what our culture would be like today if women had not been denied a voice, if their work had been preserved, taught, and considered as equal. It is important that we find what voices did speak up and listen to them. Leaving all possible subdivisions aside, let me say that love is of two types. We shall call the first vulgar or dishonest love, the other honest, that is so save virtues. Dishonest love, which is found only in vulgar and low-minded individuals, that is, in those whose souls are low and vile, who lack of virtue or refinement, whether they come from noble or insignificant stock, is generated by a desire to enjoy the object that is loved, and its goal is none other than that of common animals. They simply want to obtain pleasure and to procreate something that resembles themselves, without any farther thoughts or concern. Those who are moved by this desire and who love in disguise, as soon as they have reached their goal and have satisfied their longing, will desist from their motion and will no longer love. As a matter of fact, they may quite often recognize that they have made a mistake or get fed up with the time and trouble they have put into it. And so they turn their love into hate. Of course, I was not considering this type of love. I certainly believe you, for I know that your noble heart would never stoop so low as even to think of taking about such vile matters. But pray, go on. Hannah's love, which is characteristic of noble people, people who have a refined and virtuous disposition, whether they be rich or poor, is not generated by desire, like the other, but by reason. It has as its main goal the transformation of oneself into the object of one's love, with a desire that the loved one be converted into oneself, so that the two may become one or four. 
Many times, this transformation has been beautifully described by Petrarch, as well as by the very reverend Cardinal Bembo. And as this transformation can only take place on a spiritual plane, so in this kind of love, the principal part is played by the spiritual senses, those of sight and hearing, and above all, because it is the closest to the spiritual, the imagination. But in truth, as it is the lover's wish to achieve a corporeal union besides the spiritual one, in order to affect a total identification with the beloved, and since this corporeal unity can never be attained because it is not possible for human bodies to be physically merged into one another, the lover can never achieve this longing of this, and so will never satisfy his desire. Thus, he cannot love with a limit, as I concluded earlier. Although one could extend the description of these two types of love, and definitely, I consider what I've said sufficient to demonstrate that my conclusion is entirely valid. Love. How is love a feminist issue? The stereotype of feminism excludes romantic love and heterosexual erotic love. But why is this? Why would one imagine that because a woman wants agency, she automatically does not want love, sensuality, or romance? For many of us, our idea of romance and of love is based on the relationships we see around us and hugely influenced by the aspiration of love represented in the films and the TV we watch. First and foremost, we are taught that women must be beautiful. It is traditionally by far the most important aspect of being female. Women are seen as objects, but objects are not capable of agency. So when we think of women in love, we generally think of women being desired. We think about women loving as a mother loves a child, nurturing and caring. We still have few models today for women's erotic love, women who love passionately but without the need to take care of her partner or be an object for her partner. It is possible, I think, to reject that idea of being an object and find romance and eroticism in an equal exchange. First of all, I do not understand why you blame and call dishonest that kind of love that is not only common to all animate things, I mean earthly creatures, but is proper to them, for they are made for it more than anything else. We can observe this in plants and grasses, which have a vegetative soul, in all brutish animals, which have vegetative and sensitive souls, and then human beings as well, who possess a rational and intellectual soul besides the vegetative and sensitive ones. For Aristotle says that the man who cannot generate, since he cannot do what nature has created him to do, is no longer a man. Secondly, I wonder what you would say about those men who love boys, whose urge cannot obviously be a desire to generate something similar to themselves. Furthermore, it does not seem true that all those who love with a vulgar and lascivious love desist from loving as soon as they have satisfied their desires. On the contrary, there are many who seem to burn more ardently afterwards. These three points I have raised in regard to the first type of love are enough for the time being. I would answer your first point 
by saying that I am well aware that we humans cannot be reprehended or praised for the instinctive drives that arise from our nature. Hence, the first step of love is not to be blamed, either in the plant or the animal kingdom. And it should not be called lascivious or dishonest in them, or indeed in human beings. Rather, it can be and should be lauded to a greater extent in human because they are capable of generating offspring of a more noble and worthy caliber than plants and animals can. My main proviso is that this appetite should not become unbridled and overpowering, for this often happens with human beings who are endowed with a free will, while it does not occur in the plant or animal kingdom. It is not just because animals are animals, as an empress once replied in a famous aside, but because they are guided by an entering mind. Dialogue on the Infinity of Love is an important text. It provides a variant to the woman as virgin mother whore motif that currently furnishes our psyche on the nature of women. Thank you for listening to She Speaks Volumes. In the next episode, we are covering Sor Juana Ine de la Cruz, the 17th century Phoenix of Mexico, a nun, philosopher, playwright, and composer. To be notified of upcoming episodes, subscribe to She Speaks Volumes in the podcast player of your choice and sign up for the Feral Culture Lab newsletter. Links are available on the website and in the show notes.